Well, brothers and sisters, this is where you may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And my time is limited, but I do want to quickly say I am so happy to be here. And I don't mean just behind the pulpit. I mean with you. I am so happy to be here with you, dear saints. Uh, it, my favorite instrument is the piano, and Brett is incredibly talented. But to hear the instrument of God's, voice, uh, God's saints singing together uh, is, is an amazing thing to reflect upon. Uh, I'll be honest, I paused singing just to hear the, the voices of the saints. And next to the voice of my wife and the voice of my children, you guys have a wonderful voice. I love hearing you sing. I believe this is the part where uh, Hubtown kids will be dismissed. If you can ask my wife, I'm terrible with directions, so forgive me for turning my face. But Gray Station and Blue Station, Gray Station, uh, from ages 6th to 5th grade, you're going to be exiting House Left. Yes, House Left, my right. And Blue Station, from ages 3 to 5 years, you'll be exiting uh, House Right, which is my left. And so, uh, uh, friends, if you have children and you are wondering just what the, what the children's area looks like, uh, we believe that it is our responsibility to help you to disciple your children. And so your children uh, will be engaged in the scriptures as they consider who Jesus is. And so this morning, we're going to be doing the exact same thing. Friends, this morning, we will conclude our long study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if we uh, had a, uh, a, a television advertisement or a movie trailer, this is where the words, witness the epic conclusion, would fly across the screen. We will be concluding this sermon series with our 72nd sermon in this series. And quick fun fact, we began this series uh, through Mark way back on February 9th of 2020. And so I'm sure you can think of one, two, maybe three exciting events that have occurred in our life together as a church. In writing this gospel account of the life, teachings, miracles, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the author Mark sought to convince his Roman readers that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. Mark began his account by stating this. You can look at this back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And last week, we saw that he concluded his gospel with an empty tomb. From the beginning of our study through Mark's account to the end of his account, we have been left with this one reality. Many opinions, many thoughts, but one reality. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We will have completely missed the point if we assume that Jesus is merely a good moral teacher or a socio-political revolutionary. So why preach 71 sermons plus one more verse by verse through this book? It's not because we want to establish an extensive sermon library. It's because we want to carefully consider who Jesus is as revealed in the scriptures. When Peter was asked by Jesus himself, who do you say that I am? Peter's confession simply was, you are the Christ. So, 71 sermons later, later friends, 
Who do you say that Jesus is? This morning, we'll turn our attention to this last section recorded here in Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me now. Uh, if you're reading from one of the Black Pew Bibles, you'll find this passage on page 1015. If you're new to reading the Bible, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. The chapter numbers are those larger numbers, and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. You can also follow along with me on the screen as I read. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Brothers and sisters, we began this study by considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is fitting that we end this study by considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. The main idea, if you're taking notes, is simply the risen Jesus Christ is building his church through the proclamation of the gospel. The risen Jesus Christ is building his church through the proclamation of the gospel. Our church, like so many others, will face many decisions regarding the building of the local body. But as we'll consider this morning, the risen Jesus Christ has prescribed one primary and ordinary means to building his church. The proclamation of the gospel. So, four questions to consider from this passage. Uh, if you're a note taker, uh, I want to help you to stay organized as I strive to stay organized. So there's four questions we want to consider from this section in the end of Mark's gospel. Number one, was Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 originally written by Mark himself? Number two, what is the gospel? Number three, what isn't the gospel? I'm sorry, what isn't evangelism? And number four, what is evangelism? They should be up on the screen for you as well. Now, before considering these four questions from our passage, there is a bit of an elephant in the room that we need to deal with first. Now, before anybody's cages gets rattled, I want to encourage you with two things. You ought to trust in a very big sovereign God. Now, that is indisputable. I will also ask you to trust me as one of your pastors just a little bit. So, trust God, and then trust me. Now, elephant in the room. 
If you carefully look at the top of the section of Scripture in your Bible, whether it's uh, uh, the Bible that you possess, uh, that you brought with you, or maybe the, one of the Black Pew Bibles, you're going to see a brief disclaimer that says this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So you'll find this disclaimer in numerous trusted Bible translations like the English Standard Version, which is what we're reading out of this morning, uh, 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 the popular NIV, the the Christian Standard Bible, um, or even the New American Standard Version as well. So the um, numerous trusted Bible translations include this brief disclaimer. So some will read this and they'll feel their cages a little rattled. You won't notice, uh, if, if you look carefully, you'll see uh, that disclaimer in brackets and then the section that's recorded in double brackets. Right? Now, was Mark 16, 9 through 20, originally written by Mark himself or was this a later addition to the text? One other area that we see such a later addition is the account of the adulterous woman with Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 53, concluding in chapter 8, verse 11. So there's these two uh, uh, instances where we see these uh, similar disclaimers and what appears to be a later addition. Now, don't fret. Let me give you some encouragements here. Now, to deal with this elephant in the room, we're going to look at external and internal evidence. So, External and internal evidences have led many scholars to understand that this section was probably not written by Mark. We're not sure who wrote this, probably a scribe uh, later on, but it probably wasn't Mark. Some of the earliest ancient manuscripts don't have this section included. Uh, Several early church fathers uh, who were the early teachers of the church, Uh, you might be familiar with the term patristic Writers, the early church fathers like Eusebius, Jerome, Clement of Alexandria, and many others, they un- understood that this section was not originally written by Mark. In fact, the, uh, the codex of Greek manuscripts available did not include this section. So these early church fathers would say, hey, the Greek manuscripts we have available don't include this. So that's some external evidence. Now, internally, as for the verses themselves, there's some stylistic differences uh, compared to this section with the rest of Mark's gospel. Right? There's this striking shift in writing style. Imagine if I'm speaking everyday normal English and then I just break out in 16th century Victorian style English. Right? It's kind of a stark difference in speaking style. Well, similarly in this text, there is a strike shift in the writing style, specifically because there are certain Greek words and phrases that are included here that are uncommon in the rest of Mark's gospel. Another example is that in verse 8, the subject of verse 8 appears to be the women, and then in verse 9, there's this awkward transition because now the subject is he, meaning Jesus. So it's a bit of this uh, abrupt, awkward transition. Um, Additionally, if you look at verse 19, the phrase, the Lord Jesus, which is very common in our Christian vernacular, is not referenced one time in Mark's gospel. So even that brief phrase seems to be uncommon in Mark's writing. So where did this section come from and why would it be added to this? Well, unlike the other Gospels, scholars recognize and understand that the earliest manuscripts of Mark's account end with verse 8, which is what Pastor Josh looked at last week. And so verse 8, if you look carefully, verses 1 through 8, lacks a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus with his disciples. It also lacks Jesus' ascension to 
the Father. So scholars believe that maybe around the middle of the second century, a scribe uh, carefully constructed this section and added it as a longer ending to Mark's gospel. So uh, maybe similar to some stories that we read, this section, it reads like an epilogue. Right? It's, uh, scholars recognize that this section uh, reads like a patchwork of the other Gospels. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a couple of examples as to where this section might have been inspired from and pulled from. So just quickly, verse 9 reads similarly to John chapter 20, verse 14, and Matthew 28, verse 9. Verse 10 looks like it was summarized from John chapter 20, verse 18, Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, and Luke 24, verse Verse 10. Uh, verse 11 looks like Luke 24:11. Verse 12 looks like the account in Luke where Jesus uh, meets with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You can find that in Luke 24, verses 13 to 31. And just real quickly, verses 13 and 14 may have come from Luke 24, verses 33 to 36. Verse 15. Uh, which we'll uh, look at a little bit later on, it reads a lot like the Great Commission passage that we find in Matthew 28. And then verse 16 uh, sounds, interestingly, a lot like John chapter 3, verse 18. And then finally, verses 7 through tw- uh, 17 through 20 look like the various passages recorded in the book of Acts. So, why do I share all of these Bible trivia uh, pieces to you? It's not to uh, show you, hey, I've done my homework, It's to show you that we want to carefully consider the scriptures. Now, if you hear me and you hear what I'm saying and you think, well, if Mark didn't write these words in this section, then we have to throw away inspiration and inerrancy and just throw it out the window. Brothers and sisters, that is not the case. This question is not about the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. What we're dealing with is simply a question regarding the transmission of these documents. So we can say, and we have general consensus among scholars within the evangelical circle and outside of the evangelical circles, that Mark likely did not write these words, but we can still affirm that the words Mark did write is indeed inspired and inerrant. The fact that scholars are able to reproduce the New Testament documents from all the data and manuscripts we have is precisely what allows us to understand that this section is not original to Mark. And additionally, and and I hope this is an encouragement to you, if a scribe in the uh, early, mid, late second century wrote this longer ending and based on the events recorded in the other three Gospels, that should remind us that in the early church, it was understood that the Gospel accounts were fourfold. And so very early on in the church, the church understood that the Gospel accounts included Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we can trust that the canon of the Gospel accounts were very early because the scribe would have been inspired by these other three Gospels as we looked at. Now, some textual critical work aside, let us jump right in to what we are working with. So, this brief section, this patchwork of these other Gospel verses, what do we see here? There there are a couple of things that I want to just briefly highlight. Number one, we are shown the post-resurrection of, of appearance of Jesus to his disciples. So first we see Mary Magdalene. Uh, she was bewildered at seeing Jesus, and she ran off to tell the other uh, disciples, but they didn't believe it. 
which seems to be kind of a common theme amongst the disciples through our, uh, our study through the Gospel of Mark. They didn't believe it. And then the second thing that we see is that the Lord gives what we call the Great Commission. Right? So he commissions the disciples, if you read in verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, we are m- most likely familiar with the more widely referenced passage in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where we see all authority has been given to Christ, and therefore the disciples are to go. Now, short an- the, the long answer to this brief question, Mark probably didn't write this section, However, let us now look at a second question that we ought to consider when we look at this section. That's simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Before he would ascend to the Father in heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel. Every Christian church by nature and by God's divine design, is to be a local embassy for the kingdom of Christ. And in this kingdom, we are not the kings and queens. We are the servants proclaiming this good news of the king whom we represent through this local embassy that is the local church. The message that defines the church and unites the church is a message that we have not concocted ourselves, but we have been entrusted with by the Lord Jesus. So if you read the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28 or even Matthew chapter 16 or Mark chapter 16, and you think, yeah, but this really isn't for me. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. The call to proclaim the gospel is not just some general friendly advice that we are given to, uh, that that we have received by a neighbor that we occasionally chit-chat with. The call to proclaim the gospel to the whole world is a great responsibility given to her church by her master. So if we are to be faithful in this task of proclaiming the gospel in our neighborhoods and in uh, in the nations, brothers and sisters, we need to understand what the gospel is. Now, if you're visiting with us today and you don't identify yourself as a Christian, let me just say we are so glad that you are here with us today and we really hope to be able to see you again. But I want to quickly ask you, what do you understand the Christian message to be? Based on your understanding, how would you define Christianity? Would you define Christianity as a rigid religious structure that's based on socially conservative morals and values? Or would you describe Christianity as a kind of pick yourself up by your own bootstraps because God helps, only helps those who help themselves kind of philosophy? Is your understanding of Christianity that Christianity is the forge that forms the bullets that fires in the guns of the culture wars? Would you, uh, uh, would you describe Christianity as an irrelevant philosophy that was fine in the 50s, but is insufficient to answer the questions and the problems that we face today. Friend, this would be such an edifying conversation for you to have over lunch today with your Christian friend or family member that you're here with today. What is Christianity? When you see the Bible's understanding of Christianity, I think that you might find it as a surprise in comparison to your own understanding or experience. 
In our modern age of self, much of the popular self-help philosophies promoted today will simply tell you that you're just fine. The central message of the new religion of our modern age says, we exist to express our truest selves. But the Bible is much more realistic about the human condition. Nowhere in the Bible will you find this idea that the human condition is just fine. And I would venture to say that your own personal experience with the various trials and difficulties of this life would agree with the Bible's assessment, even if you disagree with the rest of the Bible. The Bible explicitly teaches that all of humanity has been made in the image of a holy, just, and righteous God. Our inherent value and personal dignity are not something that we produce in and of ourselves. And the same is true for that person that you really don't like a lot, who annoys you and is maybe an an opponent to uh, your way of life. Our value and dignity have been endowed to every single person by, uh, by the fact that we have been endowed with being made in the image of God. The Bible clearly teaches that our first parents, Adam and Eve, although created without sin, were meant to know and love God. But they were seduced into sin, disobeying God, and therefore they rejected and rebelled against God. And friends, don't be so quick to say, well, it was all mom and dad's fault. I'm I'm innocent of this. No, we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. We are equally guilty of our rebellion and transgression against God. None of us are off the hook. Jesus considered mankind's condition to be so serious that the only remedy for man, or only remedy, was for man to be born again. And if you've read any books on birthing, you can understand how wild this solution would be. Paul uses the language and image of death in Ephesians chapter 2 to describe our condition. He's saying that in our trespasses against God, we were spiritually dead. And can I ask, what do dead people do? Nothing. What is Christianity about? Friends, Christianity is about news. And I know that term news is not very popular in our hyperpolarized cultural moment. But let me just say this again. Christianity is about news. Christianity is about a specific kind of news. Good news. The Bible uses this word, evangel, to literally mean good news. So friends, have you considered that the gospel that you possess, the gospel that you have received, is good news? I shared with a brother uh, just yesterday that uh, if he wants to, uh, and and I said this as like a personal example that I need to do this better myself, but if he wants to show the great joy that he has in Christ before his children, it's probably not a bad idea to smile when we think about Jesus, right? So if we have good news, we typically don't, you know, have a scowl. We, We smile. This is good news. We have good news. But it's not the kind of good news that just simply says that you and I are okay. It's it's not the kind of good news that says that all we need is a little bit of faith so that we can cash in on God's blessings and live our best lives now. 
The gospel is not the kind of good news that says that Jesus just wants to make all of your hopes and dreams come true. Or that Jesus is some sort of cosmic therapist who will quietly listen to all of your problems but make no moral judgments. Or that Jesus is a good example for you to follow. It is not the kind of good news that says, well, God just wants you to live rightly, so he's given you some basic instructions before leaving earth. No, dear friends, the gospel is much better news than this. The Christian gospel is the kind of good news that gives rest to weary souls. It's the kind of good news that you and I cannot manufacture. That you and I cannot earn by our own good works. That you and I cannot perform our way towards or spiritually discipline ourselves into. It's the kind of good news that you and I cannot achieve by our own intellect or ability. It's the kind of good news that you and I cannot exchange our good works for, however many they might be. It's the kind of good news that relieves your burden of condemnation and the weight of your guilt for your sin. It's the kind of good news that erases your enmity and transgressions and brings you into friendship and peace with God. I uh, normally will quote several authors and I give books away like they're hotcakes. Next to the Bible and my wedding vows, there are, those are the greatest words I will have ever read or will ever read. Uh, one book next to the Bible and my wedding vows that has encouraged me and probably shaped me more than any other work that I have ever read is Mark Dever's The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. In 2011, I sat in my apartment, I sat on the floor, I was all alone, and I just wondered, I just asked myself, do I know how to articulate the gospel? And I think that's a question that many of us would probably uh, benefit from asking. I just asked, can I articulate the gospel message? If somebody were to ask me, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, uh, uh, to understand the gospel? Can I actually articulate that with my words? Well, I realized I needed to uh, sh uh, sharpen my ability a little bit. And I picked up uh, Mark Dever's The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. I have given all my copies away of this. So if you have my personal copy with my handwritten notes, you're welcome to keep it. You're also welcome to give it back to me. Uh, but you can find a copy on the book cart. Um, it, it's uh, $5. And uh, this is not my copy. But if I don't get my copy back, I'm keeping this one, Pastor Josh. But Mark Dever, in this little book, he uh, helped uh, help me to understand how to articulate the gospel. And so here's how I have come to understand what the Bible teaches this good news, this evangel is. So here goes. The evangel, the good news, is that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to love him, uh, to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone, for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God.
Brothers and sisters, that is good news. The Christian gospel is the kind of good news that comes to you only by the sheer grace of God. It's the kind of good news that says by his death on the cross, Jesus Christ became the lamb that was slain for us. As our substitute and redeemer, he is the one who has made peace between us and God by having taken our guilt upon himself and giving to us his own righteousness. He took upon himself the punishment we deserve for our sins as our substitute. He took it and he gave to us what we never could earn or produce. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ fully assuaged the personal and just wrath of God that was due to us. And in His grace, all we must do, all we must do, to receive complete forgiveness and eternal life with God is to receive this good news by faith. Brothers and sisters, how will you answer this question, what is the gospel? I hope it will sound something like what I just quoted. But what we can say is that it's good news. The gospel is good news. Now, question number three. As we consider this text, well, uh, the third question we should consider, what isn't evangelism? Right? So, we approach this text, we recognize that there's this, uh, this call to go take the gospel out. So, what isn't evangelism? I want to start with the negative before I uh, jump into the positive. And I, I also want to be, uh, uh, you know, just pastorally sensible, because when we talk about evangelism, I think it's fair to say that many Christians likely feel a certain tension or awkwardness. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I think many of us likely feel this tension or awkwardness when it comes to evangelism. Because when we hear accounts of successful evangelism, whatever that might look like, you know, someone sharing the gospel, we can celebrate that. Uh, but then, you know, we don't want to be asked, like, well, when was the last time you shared the gospel? Right? It kind of feels a little awkward to talk about. But this is, safe, this is a safe space, not because uh, we have created the safe space, but because Jesus' grace is far greater than our, our own failures or inabilities. Now, we might know that evangelism is the quote-unquote right thing to do, but many of us likely have a certain self-awareness that maybe we're not evangelizing as often as we should. Maybe some of us feel like we're just not good at evangelizing. Uh, maybe, you know, we don't know how to start the conversation or how to steer the conversation towards the good news. Others may even mistakenly believe that the work of evangelism is reserved only for the professionals, the pastors, the missionaries. You know, we're happy to support those missionaries to go share the gospel over there. Right? But what are we to do with this responsibility of taking the gospel down High Street? might feel a little uncomfortable about that. But it is not true that the work of evangelism is exclusively for the pastors and the missionaries. Yes, the Bible is clear. Pastors are called to evangelize. That's true. 
they're also tasked with the work of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And what is that work of the ministry? It's to build one another up in Christ and the proclamation of the gospel to the world. So we all share in this responsibility of evangelism. You might not know my next-door neighbor, and I might not know your coworker you share a cubicle with, but you and I together share this responsibility to proclaim the gospel, which means we have to tell the good news. It's what, it's what Jesus says. And if you don't want to look at uh, uh, these words in, Ma- in Mark chapter 16, well, then look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28. So, the Great Commission is a shared commission. So, if we're going to understand what evangelism is, I think it would be helpful for us to clarify a few popular misunderstandings surrounding evangelism. What, is, what isn't evangelism? What is not evangelism? So, a few quick thoughts. Evangelism is not exclusively imposition. And again, I'm leaning on uh, Dever's work here in this book. Highly encourage you to uh, pick up a copy and read it. Evangelism is not exclusively imposition. Many of us will be very quick to agree to that. It is never imposition. Christian, or uh, it is never imposition. Christian evangelism, by definition, is simply telling the good news. It is never imposition. So, yes, it would help if we were to speak in a persuasive manner, but we never seek to coerce. We didn't invent or manufacture the gospel, so we have no right to alter it, add to it, or subtract from it. Our responsibility, regardless of age or status, education or employment uh, status, whatever, wherever we are, whatever our status might be, our responsibility is to simply present the Christian gospel accurately to those who have yet to believe. We are by no means able to manipulate anyone to accept or believe it. We cannot coerce anyone from spiritual death into spiritual life. Good luck trying. It's not going to work. But you know what just might work? Is Jesus' recipe for us to simply tell the good news. We are to tell the good news. We are to live a life of love towards our neighbors and pray that God will convert the hearer. But you know what the hearer has to do? That hearer has to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But Christian evangelism is never in position. Christian evangelism is also not exclusively personal testimony. Evangelism is not exclusively personal testimony. Some people may think that to evangelize is to share your personal testimony of how you became a uh, Christian and what God has done in your life. Young girl, when I was 18 in high school, recognized that I was not a Christian, and she gave me a book, and we spent some time reading through this book, and we would talk about it. Well, I became a Christian because this young girl and this coworker of mine annoyingly and persistently were talking to me about Jesus. Thank God for Michaela and Ross. But personal testimony, uh, don't get me wrong, when we hear someone's personal testimony, it is a beautiful and a wonderful thing that we should indeed give God praise for. Hearing of an account of a transformed life may even be inspiring. But it is telling the good news of what Jesus has done in order to provide a way for sinners to find salvation simply by faith in him that turns your personal testimony actually into evangelism. So, 
if you want to share your personal testimony, let me encourage you to do so. Let me also encourage you to include the Christian gospel and explain what that good news is that turns you from not a Christian to a joyful Christian. As one pastor put it, testimony is, of course, popular in our postmodern, that's good for you age. And maybe when you've shared your personal testimony, uh, your non-Christian friend or coworker said, yeah, good for you. Now, who would object to your thinking you've gotten something good from Christ? But wait and see what happens when you try to move the conversation from what Jesus has done for you to the facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and how that all applies to your non-believing friend. That's when you discover that testimony is not necessarily evangelism. So, share your inspiring testimony. People must hear the wonderful, the many wonderful works of our saving God. The primary work that he has done is the gospel. And that's why you have a personal testimony. Uh, Number three, evangelism is not exclusively social action and public involvement. Evangelism is not exclusively social action and public involvement. Martin Luther, uh, if you're not familiar, um, you know, he's the, the old German monk that nailed that long piece of paper on that Catholic uh, church door. But Luther, uh, he has famously said a lot of things. And uh, one of the famous things that he has said is, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And that's absolutely right. He was right about that. And a great many other things. And let me encourage you to go read some of Luther's works. Um, Jesus specifically said that Christians, followers of Christ, are to let their light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your who? Who is where? In heaven, right? So we are to do good works that the Father might be glorified. But we do also need to be careful that we do not mistakenly assume social action and good works for non-Christians to be evangelism. Right? If you go out to lunch today and you leave a really generous tip for your waiter or waitress who you assume is not a Christian, that's a really good thing to do. And let me encourage you, as someone who was in the food service industry, you should, you should definitely generously tip your waiter or waitress, even if their service was not that good. Because our service before the Lord was not that good, and he gave us such a great gift that he took us from death to life. So my waitress or waiter could use an extra 5 or 10% of my uh, maybe stingy generosity. Tip your waitress. But don't get me wrong. There are matters of social action that we can advocate for, and there are matters of justice that indeed demand our voices. But, or rather, I should say, and, evangelism is not declaring God's political plan for the nations. Christian evangelism, simply, maybe this will help relieve some of the burden off your understanding of, what am I supposed to do with evangelism? Christian evangelism, is the declaration of the gospel to individual men and women. Societies change when God's character is on display amongst converted sinners who have received Christ by faith and rest in him. You can read the book of Acts for a few examples of that. All right, number four. Uh, What uh, is evangelism not? Evangelism is not exclusively apologetics. 
I came to faith through the work of apologetics. I had hard questions that I was asking. Can I actually trust the reliability of the scriptures? Can I actually trust the historical validity of Jesus Christ? Was the tomb actually empty or is this like some grand Christian packaging scheme that was found later on? I had hard questions. What about that guy that never hears the gospel? Is he going to go to hell? Well, how does that work if God is a loving God? I had hard questions and I was given a book on apologetics and it answered all of my questions and somehow everything just clicked. Now, I understand God sovereignly worked in my life and brought me to faith, and it wasn't Lee Strobel's book, but let me encourage you to read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. I read it, and I still have a copy of it, and about every other page has been doggy-eared. Apologetics, though, is the work of defending the faith. It's defending the truth of the Christian faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is probably the go-to verse for many of us who like apologetics and enjoy it, where Peter says that Christians are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Apologetics aims to do just that. There's a lot of material aimed to defend the Christian faith. I would simply encourage you that simply rebutting objections or answering difficult questions while necessary is not necessarily evangelism. So if you explain to me persuasively and convincingly why I and you can trust in the inerrancy and the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures and why the scriptures that you and I possess today are an accurate copy of God's word. If you explain that to me, but you never tell me the good news, well, you've helped me understand some really important and necessary things that I need in this Christian life. But to start the Christian life, we need to start with the good news. The, the Christian life is not the Christian life if there's no good news in that life. Apologetics is defending the faith while evangelism is telling the good news about Jesus and the salvation that only comes through faith in Christ. So, go defend the truth of Christianity. I will also go defend the truth of Christianity. But let us together do that And then also tell people of the good news that we're trying to defend. Evangelism is not exclusively uh, uh, apologetics. Now, I basically spoiled the ending. Right? I'm trying to preach a shorter sermon than my normal practice. I've basically spoiled the ending of my sermon because I have told you the answer to this fourth question that we ought to consider from this text. If we've considered what the gospel is, and we've considered what evangelism is not, and we've considered that we should be really generous with our tipping, well, what is evangelism? Turn from the negative to the positive. What is evangelism? Well, I'm going to quote Ian Murray. Ian Murray wrote a great many books in his, um, probably his seminal work, Revival and Revivalism. He, he, he writes this, and I I think this will be really helpful. Evangelism is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making out a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying, Jesus saves. Some of these things may be right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. 
Murray goes on to say, to evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. To evangelize means we are simply to announce the good news. And I I do want to just give you a quick word of caution. This work that Jesus has given to us, and whether you believe it's uh, found in Mark chapter 16 or Matthew chapter 28, this work that Christ has given to us is a costly work. This is not the type of work that we engage in where bi-weekly we get a paycheck directly deposited into our accounts. You will face a cost when you go to an unbeliever their sins if they do not repent, but there is a way to salvation if in Christ. You will face a cost. You will lose friends. Your family may reject you. You may, in one 18-year-old boy's uh, case, get kicked out of your house when your father found your baptism certificate for your profession of faith and your defending of the good news to your family. You may have to bounce around from friends' couches and the local days in, but there is a cost to the proclamation of the gospel. I don't say that to cause fear in you, I say that to help you to consider that whatever cost that you will pay pales in comparison to the great cost that Christ has paid to provide salvation. Jesus on the cross did not give a percentage of himself. In order to open the gate of salvation for sinners who are at enmity with God and who are in rebellion against God, what did Jesus do? He paid the ultimate cost by giving all of himself. Jesus considered the cost when he in the garden said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, in this costly work of evangelism, Are you willing to pay this temporary cost, maybe losing a friend, maybe an awkward conversation with your neighbor who doesn't want to really like talk with you, you know, across the fence anymore? Are you willing to engage in this costly work for the sake of Jesus Christ? Now, let me give you one, uh, hopefully all of that was encouraging, but let me give you something else to encourage you with. We understand That to evangelize means we are simply to announce the good news. We've been given one job. Announce the news. We don't have to build the house. We don't have to pour the concrete for the footers. We don't have to fence the house. We've We've been given one job. Announce the good news. But to evangelize does not mean that we are the ones who are responsible to win converts. We are not the ones who are responsible to win converts. I think, in my experience, in conversations I've had, and I've heard others say something similar, sometimes we confuse the work of evangelism, the the work of the proclamation of the gospel, with the fruit of evangelism. Sometimes we confuse things uh, for what they are not. We might think, well, if I evangelize, that that person's got to come to faith, and if that person doesn't come to faith, then I didn't do it right. 
brothers and sisters, let me help you unstrap that weight of burden off your shoulders because God has not made the church responsible for the conversion of sinners. God has taken the responsibility of conversion and regeneration upon himself. He has entrusted to us the responsibility of the proclamation here on High Street and in the nations. As one pastor put it, we do not fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully tell the gospel at all. Evangelism itself is not converting people. It's telling them that they need to be converted and telling them how they can be. Friends, when you leave this room today, my hope is that you will reflect and remember and rejoice in and celebrate how you were converted. My hope is also that you will take that good news of great joy that God has so graciously provided and that you will joyfully share that with those of yet to hear. Proclaiming the gospel to evangelize, it's to announce the good news. When we got married, or before we got married, I don't talk about um, me personally much, but um, I think many of you will understand when I share this example. Before we got married, we uh, worked uh, uh, save the, save the, no, uh, wedding invitations. We didn't do save the dates. We had wedding invitations. What did those wedding invitations do? Well, it reminded people that something big was coming, and there's really good news to share, you know. Two people are about to get married, and this is a really big deal, and we're going to throw a big old party, and we really hope that you give us a KitchenAid mixer. <laughs> but that wedding invitation served as an announcement of good news. People that we loved and who loved us were hearing good news, good news to celebrate. Friends, as much as I love being married, and I never take my wedding ring off except at the gym, because I don't want my ring to get messed up with the knurling of a barbell, as much as I love wearing this wedding ring, do you know what is better news than our own marriages or those wedding invitations? That Jesus Christ died to save sinners, and by faith in him, you can find forgiveness of your sins and the burden of your guilt removed that you could never earn or manufacture on your own because he has provided it for you. He has taken the weight of your guilt upon himself, the only shoulders that were strong enough to bear that weight, and he has given to you his righteous robes. If you view yourself to be ugly, if you view yourself to be hideous, friends, God looks upon you with the beauty of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know what? You didn't even put that robe on yourself. Jesus took those filthy garments off of you and he took his perfect robe and he dressed you. We have good news. And it is this good news that Jesus has said that we are to take into the world and proclaim to the gospel. Friends, let me just ask you one more question that was not part of my four questions to consider. Friends, do you believe this good news? Do you believe that this news that you have is good? Do you believe that this news that you have is news that we ought to share? We are by nature, by definition, when we were converted, we were made into mouthpieces for Jesus' good news. We are to go into all the world to proclaim this good news. Now, as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, 
we have been a little hard on the disciples. Well, maybe because they have maybe they rightly warranted our hardness on them. They failed to believe, they consistently misunderstood, they were saying the wrong things and they were doing the wrong things. But they were trying, right? They were they're probably well-meaning. But in the various other gospel accounts, when we see that they are being told, hey, the tomb's empty, the stone's been rolled away, and there's no body there, what are we doing? They didn't believe the news that Jesus rose. I want you to quickly just jump down to verse 20. In verse 20, uh, whoever the scribe was who wrote this was inspired from the other gospels, and he wrote, And they went out and preached everywhere. Okay, so what did Jesus say to do? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It seems like the disciples finally got it. They saw the risen Lord. They saw the holes in his hands. They they hear the familiar voice. Their minds were opened to the scriptures to show that all of the scriptures, starting from Moses, the law and the prophets, all of the scriptures pointed to Christ. Read Luke chapter 24. What did they do? They finally believed. They finally believed in the risen Lord Jesus. And they went out and preached everywhere. Everywhere. You and I possess the gospel today. You and I possess faith in Christ today because one of those 12 went somewhere and hearers were converted and then they went somewhere and then those hearers were converted and then they went somewhere and then somebody converted a German family who told me the gospel and then God converted me. The gospel was preached everywhere. What is it that they preached? What is it that they were and that we are entrusted to take to the whole world? Starting with your office, maybe starting with your children, maybe starting with your neighbor with the dividing fence. What is it that we are to take to the whole world? It's the good news. It's the good news that is summarized in the three most eloquent words of J.I. Packer. God saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we take this time to remember and reflect upon the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, the world, uh, through various deceptions and lies, has given to us nothing but bad news. We have been the recipients of bad news everywhere we have turned. But when you found us lost in our darkness, God, you gave to us good news. You gave to us good news that we could find freedom from our sin. Freedom from slavery and bondage to sin. Freedom from engaging in wickedness to turn to holiness. Father, when we were at enmity against you, you gave us good news and you made us into friends. And Father, you have given to us this good news and you have entrusted this good news to the church. This was not your plan B. This is plan A. And Lord, until we see the innumerable uh, 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 voices crying out praise to you that we see in Revelation, 
Lord, we understand and recognize that this work of gospel proclamation is to continue. And so, Father, we thank you that Christians above anyone else have actually good news to proclaim to a world desperate for it. Father, we ask that as we go to proclaim this news, to obey you and to honor you and to uh, bring great praise to Christ, Father, we ask that you would help us, your saints, whom you call beloved and dear and holy and chosen. Father, we ask that you would lead us and help us and guide us to delight in and to treasure and to cherish and to protect and to give away the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and ask that you would do this work for your glory and for the good of your church.